0: as we uh, worship this morning. Uh, Those who are in Sunday school, you are dismissed at this time, so the young people who are headed for Sunday school, you're free to leave at this time. I'm going to not share a lot of announcements. I don't have a lot of announcements. There's several things in the bulletin you can take note of. Just would say that we have several folks that are recovering from illness and sickness and uh, accidents, and so continue to keep them in your prayers. I'd appreciate if you would do that. Uh, I'd ask you to join me as we look to the Lord in prayer, as we continue to worship through the study of His Word. Father, uh, I thank You uh, for the the truths of the song we just sang. And can it be, uh, how can it be, Lord, that we would gain an interest in the cross? As we considered some truths this morning in our our earlier service and thinking about my my sin my sinful self is 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 my shame and my glory is all the cross and we can only glory in the cross of Christ and we come in the presence your presence this morning I pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your law I ask that you would continue to inform us and instruct us so that we might be changed into the image of Christ. I pray that those who are listening and hearing and seeing this morning who are not yet your children might be drawn to you and understand the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ and come into a relationship with you and know the forgiveness and the promise and the purpose that they can have in this life. Now we ask you to take the word of God and open our eyes and, and minds to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Immediately after, the examiner for the ACT college admissions test said, Stop. A student that I know filled in another blank. Filled in another circle. And the supervisor said, That's it. You just disqualified yourself from this test. This test is null and void. The student was completely distraught, completely disheartened. Their disobedience, though small, had a significant consequence. Now they ended up taking the test and did fine and went to college and graduated, no problem. But it was devastating. And in the same way that that little small infraction resulted in a devastating consequence, the passage we are looking at this morning in 1 Samuel 15 is another example of disobedience that devastates. And we see it in 1 Samuel chapter. 15, verses 1 through 35, where this partial disobedience on the part of Saul led to his rejection as being king in Israel. His bad example teaches us that devastating consequences of disobedience and also the delight of, di- of obedience. So it's, it's a two-edged sword. There are these devastating consequences if we disobey, but there is the delight of God when we obey. If you have your Bibles, i invite you to turn to 1st Samuel chapter 15 there are Bibles underneath the seats in front of you if you don't have one or if you have your phone that's fine I'm reading from the New American Standard Version so there are again as I've said before there are some differences in the translations we'll try to address some of those we won't address all of them but I'm just going to be reading down through the first 23 verses this morning and then but we're going to unpack try to unpack all of it First Samuel 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, "The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over Israel, over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him." But put to death both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. And then Saul summoned the people and he numbered them and Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And, and Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And he said, Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, or Am- Amalekites, uh, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah. as so he go to Shur in east of Egypt and he captured Agag, the king of Amalek, of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all of the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag the and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and We're not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and so I'm Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the commandment, uh, the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep on my ears, and the lowing of oxen which I hear? When Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. And then Samuel said to Saul, wait. Or the ESV says, stop. And let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true that you were little in your own eyes and you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil and oxen and the choicest of the things devoted to to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, that's just the start of it. It goes on, and we're going to continue on with it. But we see God's rejection of Saul as the king, at least in my understanding. It provides us three insights, okay? Three insights to inspire us to practice and prioritize obedience, which God delights in, and to put off disobedience, which God disciplines, okay? And so the first insight here is that God reveals what disobedience looks like, what disobedience is. And there are two facts that reveal the essence of disobedience. First of all, we see a clear expectation of obedience in God's word. All right? In verses one through three, God has chosen Saul. And he makes it clear Did I not choose you? Uh, Verse 1, then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over the people. So we have God's choice of Saul as king, all right? And we have God's place as the creator and supreme ruler of all the world. Uh, He uses the words Lord and Lord of hosts. He is their creator. He is the Lord of hosts. That means he is the ruler of all and authority over all the armies of heaven and earth and everything under it and over it. All armies, cosmic and earthly, he's in charge of them. So he deserves Saul's allegiance and Saul's obedience in the same way that he deserves our allegiance and obedience. When I was in seminary, I worked for Freddie Cesaretti. And Freddie was an Italian, had an Italian restaurant. And so I was a waiter. And Freddie hired me to be a waiter in the restaurant. And so whatever Freddie told me to do as a waiter, as his employee, that's what I did. Why? He's the boss. God is the boss. And we are to do what the boss says. So here we see the first command is when Saul says, or Samuel said to Saul, Now therefore, in verse 1, listen to the words of the Lord. Now what he means by listen is actually hear them and do them. And that word listen, the position of the word and the repetition of the word with these other words, which it, it's translated here in these Verses. Listen, obey, hear, with the voice or the sound. So you see these combination of words: listen, hear, obey, voice, and sound in these verses. And I'm going to just list them for you here in verse one, in verse fourteen, in verse nineteen, in verse twenty, and two times in verse twenty-two, and one time in verse twenty-four. So we are to listen, hear, obey the voice. The word, the sound of the Lord, that's the focus of the passage. Do what God says. And he makes it clear. Verse 1, verse 14, verse 19, verse 20, verse 22, verse 24. Obey, listen, do. This is what God calls us to do. Stresses obedience to the Lord as a focus. And Saul had been rejected as the king. We saw that back in chapter 13. Because he disobeyed God. He had been rejected, but he hadn't yet been replaced. And so until his replacement comes, God communicates to the active king, and that's Saul. So you've got to do what I say, and he gives him this commandment. Instructed him to utterly destroy Amalek for their past, what they had done in the past, Right? what they had done to Israel as they had left Egypt. And you can read about that and study that. There's cross-references in your Bible in, in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. But it wasn't just for the past, but it was for their persistent and their unrepentant evil in opposition to God's people. So this is not just a punishment for what they did in the past. It's a punishment for what they did in the past but continued and perpetuated on. And we see this clearly as it says... In, in, uh, in, it says that there, in verse 18 that they, the sinners, the people of Amalek. okay, So Saul was to execute justice upon the Amalekites who had been and still were sinners. Ruthless and violent people who had opposed Israel and disobeyed God. So I don't have a whole time to go into all of this because what's described and what they're supposed to do is like utterly nasty but not undeserved that's the point it's the justice of God upon the wickedness and evil of people it wasn't that they were innocent and somehow this wasn't not a conquest by Saul to gain more ground and more people no this was the punishment of God and so the clear expectation of God is do what I say As difficult as it is. Secondly, we see the corrupt execution of God's word in verses 4 through 9. So Saul gathered his army and did what God asked him, uh, mostly. Right? Mostly did what God asked him. Notice the but in verse 9. So I skipped over a lot of verses, you read them. uh, And actually you can see the verse 8. It says, he captured. Agag. And then you see the but in, in verse 9, which elaborates on Saul's departure from, from God's exhortation, which was first mentioned, his departure is first mentioned in verse 8. What did God call him to do? Utterly destroy. What did he do? Well, he kept Agag safe. Verse 8. And then in verse 9, he said, well, not only did he keep Agag safe, but he and the people decided they're going to keep some of the best of the animals. You know, keep them back too. And so God called for utter destruction, but Saul placed, and and notice in verse 9, it's in the emphatic position. Saul and the people, so that along with that he captured Agag in verse 8, he tries to blame the people. But no, it's Saul's responsibility. Saul did it. And later on, we're going to see he tries to blame other people. But no, here in verse 8 and verse 9, it's all up to Saul. Saul and his army were not, in verse 9, it says, we're not willing, notice that, we're not willing to utterly destroy them. Not willing as a choice. Defying God's explicit command, which God was not very happy with. And he never is. When God asks us to do something, when he commands us to do something, he deserves our allegiance and obedience. But he doesn't just deserve it, he demands it. He's God. And so then we see, secondly, the, the, the second insight here is that God rebukes our disobedience. He doesn't just reveal what it is, but he rebukes it in verses 10 through 23. And there are two forms of rebuke that uh, we're going to look at in the text. First of all, there's a the confrontation of our disobedience. And this confrontation, for at least for Saul, and we can apply to us, is twofold. First of all, God regrets Saul's disobedience. Now, this is the first appearance of the word regret in the text. It appears three times. And some translations have regret. You could, and some ways to translate this Hebrew word, are repent. So it creates a, a few problems in our minds sometimes. But in verse 11, in verse 29, and in verse 35. But here we go. In verse verse 10, it says... Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, God's regret here is not a wish that somehow he could rewind history and that he had somehow made a mistake in in putting Saul in place and that he could have a do-over. No. Because God doesn't make errors. He's sinless. And he also doesn't regret in the same way that humans regret that's verse 29 which we'll look at in a little bit so god is not making a mistake he's not saying oh well i i I messed up here sorry bad me you know like uh you know like if you make it a bad investment and you go wow wish i had that i wish i could do that over no god is not doing that and god is also not a human being so that he would make this kind of mistake or to wish that he had done it could do it over over again no, regret here, and in verse 35, expresses God's sorrow. It's an expression of his sadness. Now, in a, the New American Standard translates it distressed. I think the NIV says troubled. Okay, so it's, it's regret, it's distress, it's troubled. He's sad. He's sad because Saul had sinned. And he feels the pain. He feels pained by the sin and the consequence that he's going to suffer because of it. So it's God sorrowful. And it's because, as the text says in verse 10 or 11, that he has turned back from following me. You see, that's what's God sorrowful. I wish he hadn't turned away from me but he has turned away from me and i'm grieved by that i'm grieved by the consequence that that's going to reap on him and on his people it's a grievous consequences and it says then that samuel the esv says was angry okay verse 11 into verse 11 and samuel was the esv says distressed but here it says he was angry well, I'm not sure what he's angry about. I mean, He's angry at God, Is angry at Saul. We don't know for sure, but he's distressed. And he's angry enough to cry out to God all night. And he pours out his heart to God. And so Saul, God regrets Saul's disobedience, but then we see God rebukes Saul's disobedience. Well, Samuel's been up praying all night, and now he's angry and he's ready to confront Saul, and so he gets up early the next morning. Well, <laughs> I think he's probably still up. Because he wanted to get this confrontation out of the way. He didn't want to prolong it. He's like, I'm getting, I'm getting this over with. I don't know about you, that's the way I am. It's like, if I had to confront somebody, <laughs> I, I don't like waiting. This is just get this over with, because it's not very fun. And so he goes out there, and he meets him. And on the way, somebody drops this on him. You know, just kind of drop in. Oh, hey, by the way, um, you know, Saul, there. Yeah, he went and he built a he built a little monument of his victory. Uh, yeah, for himself. Oh, so he's disobedient to God, didn't do what God wanted, and now he's building uh, monuments for himself, saying that the victory is his his doing. You see, it reveals a pride in Saul's heart that's willing to ignore God's commands but idolize himself. It's dangerous stuff. It's dangerous stuff. How does Saul react? How does Saul handle it? Oh, Samuel shows up, and Saul's like, "Blessed be you, my man. You're the dude. And uh, you know what? By the way, I, I've just done everything God asked me to do. Really." I did everything God asked me to do. Now, his bold claim of obedience, in my opinion, is either sheer density, you know, like duh, or smug denial, or else just plain sinful deception, and maybe some of each. But Samuel uses a series of questions throughout the rest of the text to expose, to reveal and the reality and the repulsiveness of Saul's rebellion. So he's, he's interrogating him. And the first one is a sarcastic question. In verse 14, you read it. But Samuel said, well then, uh, what's this bleeding of sheep and this lowing of oxen that I hear? And in doing that, it seems that he, he, he highlights the disparity between what Saul has claimed and what Saul has done. His claim and his conduct don't match. He's lying. He's lying. His claim and his conduct don't match. Now, before we get too uh, down on Saul, I just want to stop and say, you know, sadly, oftentimes our claims of, of obedience often conflict with the evidence of our lives. Uh, we're, we're hypocrites at times. And so we, we come to church, you know, or we listen online, you know, uh, we smile if we're in church at other people who are here, and we sing the songs and we sit quietly and we come forward and we, we take communion, you know, and we, we kind of give the presentation that everything's wonderful, that we're good people and we're godly people. But see, Our spouses and our children and our friends and for sure God see and know the hypocrisy that's in our hearts and in our lives. And so before we throw Saul under the bus, which, I mean, he he deserves that, let's just think about ourselves and say, you know, there's hypocrisy perhaps in my own life and I need to get it in, in line. And to the deception of Saul and the denial, then he adds deflection. He starts to blame people. I want you to look at verse 15. And Saul said, they, <laughs> they, they have brought some of, the, of the, the, they brought them from the Amalekites. So it's the people. We saw this back in verse 9, it was the people. Verse 21, we're going to see it's the people. It's, it's somebody else. It's not me. Okay. Verse 15, it's they. And then a little bit further in verse 15, it says the people spared. And then verse 21, the people. They kept some of the animals. And you know what? Saul, they did it for a sanctified reason. Because they wanted to offer them sacrifices to, now get this pronoun, it's important, your God. To your God. He doesn't say my God. He says your God. And he doesn't just say it here. He repeats it in verse 21 and verse 30, exposing the idea, at least I think, that for Saul, ritual observance is totally disassociated with heartfelt obedience. You can be ritually right and you don't have to be heartfelt in our obedience. You can worship God by going through the motions. You don't have to really give your heart to God is the idea that I see in Saul's life. Samuel is not amused with uh, Saul's hollow excuses and so that's where you see Uh, him say at the beginning of verse 16, Stop! Now that's my emphasis. It's just, okay, just enough now. Now let me tell you what God told me last night. And Saul's like, what's he going to say? So Saul says, okay, uh, let me me hear what, what God has to say. And Samuel interrupts to interject what the Lord said. And what did the Lord say? In verse 17, another question. Verse 17, is it not true? He's like interrogating him. Is it not true? So, and then we read the rest of the question. What is he doing? He's reminding, is it not true that you came from nowhere? He's reminding Saul that, he is, uh, that his position and his mission are a result of God's gracious action in his life. Did not God take you from nowhere? Did not God place you as the king of Israel and give you a mission to to do? God deserves his obedience. But also God demands his obedience. He is the one who put him in the place and gave him the mission, so you should carry it out. And then it carries on into verse 19. So the natural next question is, why then didn't you do it? If God commanded you and God commissioned you, then what's the problem? And God, God's action of commissioning him and, and giving him this mission, calling him, strips him of any of excuse. He, he has nothing. Why then, verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul's offense wasn't simply disobedience, but it was self-indulgence. Because we see in the very next phrase, it says, but you rushed upon, or I think the ESV says you pounced upon, the loot, the spoil. You're like, oh, let's get it. It looks good to me. Let's have it. It means to dash greedily and wickedly, and, and in the text says, and, and thereby you've done evil in the sight of the Lord. It made Saul guilty. And interestingly enough, back in chapter 14, when the people had been working, fighting all day, and they were starving to death, and they rushed upon the spoil and killed it and ate, and Saul condemned them. And so now he's, very, he's guilty of the very same thing that he had con- been condemning them for. He's guilty of it. Some of you have seen, I don't know, Maybe. I hope some of you have seen the, the videos of, uh, on social media and maybe on the news of people rushing into department stores and just looting the place. You know, like, I mean, no, no police action. We're just going to go in here and take out whatever we can take out. This is the idea. Just rushing upon it. And they've done it. And the lust for more is one of those dangerous things that fuels Disobedience but it's not just for Saul and the people of Israel. It can happen in our lives. Students uh, who crave to be popular, they're willing to compromise their moral standards in order to be accepted by other people. Men uh, who want to be accepted and men who are driven to be appreciated, we're willing to abandon sometimes our integrity. We're willing to neglect our family. We're willing to idolize money to get what we think we need, which is the appreciation of others. Women, starve for affection, thinking that's what I need, are willing to compromise, willing to commit adultery, willing to embrace immorality. And I could go on and on, but this is not just something for Saul. We crave it. We run after it and when we have to have something other than what God has provided, it leads us down a bad path. And then in verses 20 and 21, faced with the overwhelming evidence of his guilt, look at we see in verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did not obey, I did obey the voice of the Lord. He's doubling down. I mean, he's repeating the same thing. I did obey the voice of the Lord. But he considers bringing Agag and saving him as part of the obedience. I did obey the voice of the Lord. I, I, I kept Agag. And, and that's not part of the command. That's not what God had asked him to do. Not at all. Saul doubled down insisting upon his obedience, his innocence, and the people's defiance. It just amazes me. I mean, he's caught red-handed. Caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Well, it wasn't me. I mean, the, the jar just slipped under my hand. You know? You know? just his magnet. No. His callous denial and his deception and deflection of responsibility, it's really uncanny, but it's not all that uncommon. Just stop and think for a moment. You're, you're caught red-handed, let's just say, okay? You're just caught red-handed and uh, you... you, you Confronted, okay, maybe for some of the guys, maybe it's like you get caught looking at a a, a site on the internet that you shouldn't be looking at. It's a porno- pornography pornography or something. Or maybe it happens to be that uh, somebody is being unfaithful, their spouse. Or they're drinking excessively. Or they're using profanity when they shouldn't be using profanity. Or perhaps we're being cruel uh, and un. un-, un- mistreating our, our spouse or our children. or well, We're not telling the truth as we should be. Or we're gossiping. Or we're being impatient. And we're caught red-handed. How do we respond? When I drive, I'm uh, aggressive. Okay, And so there are times when I'm being aggressive and my wife... Points out the fact that I'm being impatient. And of course, there are more times than not when she points this out that I say, but the speed limit is 45 and they're going 44. What's the problem? It's a green light. That means go. It doesn't mean sit there and finish your text. And so it is obviously not my problem that I'm being impatient. It's their problem that they're going so slow. You understand my sarcasm, but it's true. And that's not to glorify me. When we speak ill of another person, yes, but other people are way more guilty of that than me. I mean... Obviously, I mean, I can tell you three or four other people who gossip way more than me or are jealous, way beyond me. And so here we see Saul, and he is guilty. His methods of sinful self-protection are the standard weapons of people who are living in rebellion against God. Secondly, we see a commendation of obedience. There's a condemnation of disobedience, but there's a commendation of obedience. In verse 22, then Samuel said, Has the Lord, next question, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? does the Lord delight in just ritual observance as opposed to heartfelt obedience and how does he answer the question? Look at the text. Behold to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And then to heed than the fat of rams. You see Scripture resounds with that truth. That God's heart, and He desires and He delights in heartfelt obedience and He despises just ritual observance of religion. God doesn't care about religion devoid from our heart. He desires ritual that is from the heart. You can see it in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. This is David, after he's been convicted of his sin with Bathsheba. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a what? A broken spirit and a contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. A contrite and broken heart. God wants our heart. And if he has our heart, we will obey. It doesn't matter how many rituals we perform. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church, how many times you come up here and get communion. It doesn't matter how much money you put in the offering plate. It doesn't matter what service you do for the Lord. If our heart is not in it, it is not good. You see, the truest test of our love for God is our heartfelt obedience to Him. This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God. This is what loving God is, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. It's not legalism. It's obedience out of love. It's not that if I do all the right things, then I'm a child of God. No, if I'm a child of God, I do all the right things. Obedience is not the means to a relationship with God. It's the manifestation of a relationship with God. This is a love of God that we keep His commandments. And they aren't burdensome. They are a delight for us. Now read verse uh, 23. For rebellion is the, the sin of divination or witchcraft... And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. You see, the value of obedience is seen in its contrast or its vilification in the vilification of disobedience. Rebellion is just as bad as witchcraft. Insubordination, you might as well commit, be an idolater. Rebellion and arrogance are as repulsive as divination and idolatry to the Lord in that they are a mark of refusal to fully surrender. It's, it's just we would not surrendered to God. Think about it this way. False, half-hearted worship of the true God is as reprehensible as genuine worship of a false god. Half hearted worship, insincere, half hearted worship of the true God is just as repulsive as sincere, genuine worship of a false God. I mean, a lot of us are like mostly obedient, right? Well, I'm like mostly good. I mean, better than average, at least in my opinion, in your opinion, you're better than average. God's grading on the curve, at least I'm not flunking, you know. I mean, I'm, okay, once in a while I don't tell the told truth, right? We use that excuse. Like, that's, you know, like, I'm not, somebody says, How do I look? I'm not, you know, I just, you well, know, okay. Got to be careful, you know, especially you married guys. Wife says, How do I look? Oh, You're good, right? You gotta be honest. Say, well, I've seen you at better days. This is not your best day, maybe. Uh, Not unless you wanna uh, sleep in the doghouse. But anyway, but see, you see what I'm saying? Sometimes we're mostly honest. Most of the time, I tell the truth. Uh, Oh, yeah, okay, maybe sometimes if I have to cheat, you know what I mean? I don't have to declare everything on my taxes, right? I mean, they take enough. Wait, look, at I don't criticize people near as much as a lot of other people. I'm not nearly as critical. Especially, I'm not anywhere near as critical as, you know, and you can fill in the blank as somebody else. And I, I forgive most everybody. This is some people, you know, it's just harder to forgive than others, right? And so we just give ourselves a pass because we don't forgive that person. I mean, I sort of love my spouse all the time. I mean, I'm not a total jerk every day or every moment of every day, usually every day, I'm, but not every moment of every day. I mean, I obey my parents a lot of the time. It's just except when there's something I want to do and they don't want me to do it, then, you know, kind of. Forget that. And we see that this is the mindset. God is repulsed by our half-hearted obedience. Finally, we see that God reproves our, our disobedience. And three examples of reproof in Saul's life that we should take note of. First of all, God rejected Saul as king. The end of verse 23 is because this is the reason, this is the result of your disobedience, Saul. Saul. Because you rejected the word of God, God rejected you as king. And it's interesting to me as you go through the text that each of these times it is his disobedience to the word of God. It's God's direct commandment and he's disobedient and he's denying it and he's deflecting from it and he's dismissing it just like we have a tendency to do. Because introduces a reason for Saul's rejecting his king, he was rejected because he disobeyed the word of God, and Saul's disobedience reflects a lack of reverence, a lack of a real relationship with God. you see because obedience is the demonstration of our love for God, and he attempts to co- attempts to compensate it for it with what might be considered important, but they're really insignificant ritual observances. He's trying to say, I don't have to obey God because we're going to offer these sacrifices. You know, kind of one outweighs the other, you know, kind of cancels each other. And the thing is, we can tend to do the same thing. We can tend to sanitize our disobedience with ritual observances as a substitute for fully surrendering to God. I'll, I'll go to church. I mean, I, I go regularly to church, but I don't really have to talk to anybody about Jesus. I mean, just because Jesus told us, you know, talk to people about Jesus. But I, but I go to church every Sunday. You know, I'm a good Christian. I, I'll take communion, but I don't really. You don't really expect me to sacrifice for my spouse, do you? Or to obey my parents. I, I, even if I treat my spouse terribly, I'm still going to take communion because God loves me. I'll give money on occasion, but uh, don't expect me to get involved in serving the Lord in any other consistent manner because I'm giving. I mean, that's my sacrifice. I'm giving to Jesus money. Or I'm giving to Jesus. My time, I don't have to give him my money. And we make these things. But, and so we see the definitiveness of, of God's retribution, his punishment on Saul, is driven home. Look at verse 24. He says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. And I would submit to you, This is fake repentance. And I say that based upon what we're going to see. Notice what he's admitting. I listened to the people. Now, it's true. He's making a confession. He's saying saying what he had, 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 had sinned. But he's faked it. I feared the people rather than fearing God and obeying God. And this is true for us too. We're tempted, right? Christian students in school or in your, with your peers, it, it's very tempting, right? Adults with our friends and family, employees at work, we're pressured to compromise our morals, to tolerate evil, not to talk about Jesus. Don't say anything too much to let people know that you're actually a Christian. I have a, a public school teacher that I know that was the only public school teacher in their uh, wing of the school who refused to fly a uh, a rainbow flag in their classroom. There's lots of pressure to just go along to get along, to please the people and not follow God. But we see it in Samuel's reply in verse 26. How does Samuel reply to Saul's Quote, unquote, repentance. Verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. Because he wanted him to return. He wanted him to return and and worship God. So that the people would see that he was a good dude. And they would think that he was okay. And Samuel says, I want no part of that. Mockery. And he repeats the same punishment. He says, you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king. And as he turned to leave... Saul is really desperate and so he grabbed a hold of his robe and he ripped and tore his robe. And then in the third time, in these few verses, the same judgment is repeated with a little bit different wording. And he says, just as you have torn my robe, so has the Lord torn the kingdom from you. God did it. And he wasn't going to change it. And that's the point of verse 29. Read verse 29. It says, look. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or regret or repent or change his mind. Why? Because he's not a human being like we regret. God had no sin in him. He had done nothing wrong in appointing Saul, but he had every right to say, Saul, you're not going to be the king. And God wasn't going to regret that. He wasn't going to change his mind no matter how much time you pled with him with this false uh, contrition no it's not going to change he was God was was sealed it's God made up his mind parents sometimes you got to make up your mind you know when the kids are being knuckleheads you say no this is the punishment and I'm not changing the punishment God of glory you see the king was unwilling to listen to God which made him unfit to be king Chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, this was a condition upon which the the success of the kingship would would perpetuate, is if they would fear God, if they would serve God, and if they would listen to God. He didn't do it, you're out. Verse 30 says this, Then he said, I have sinned, this is Saul again, but please, now, now listen to this, but please honor me. And go back with me before the elders and the people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. That's why I think back in verse 24, 25, and 26, Samuel says, I'm not going with you. Because he knew that his repentance was artificial. All he wanted to do was to save his face. He wanted to save face before the people. And Samuel says, I want no part of that. And so now that it's all out of the open, then Samuel says, okay, I'll go back with you because I'm going I'm to honor God and not you. You want me to honor you? No, that's not happening. I'm going with you. I'll show you how this works out. I'm not honoring you. His true motives are to expose are uh, exposed. So Samuel says, okay, I'll go back. And he righted, secondly, he righted Saul's offense. This is verses 32 and 33, which basically is kind of a gross uh, passage, but uh, Samuel basically finished what Saul was supposed to do, and he took care of Agag. All right? And he didn't honor Saul, he honored God. Through his obedience, his reverence and obedience to God. Out of commitment to obedience and zeal for God's holiness, Samuel took care of it. And finally, we see that God removed Saul's access to the word. Verses 34 and 35, Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to the house of Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again. He didn't see him again in any official capacity as prophet and him as the king. He did see him later on in chapter 19, but it wasn't because he was doing anything important, okay, that, that Samuel wasn't doing any official functions there. He cut himself off. His, he was duly disassociated from God's word, God's wisdom, and God's direction because he had rejected God's word. And folks, this is what can happen to us. He had cut off from God's wisdom, God's, his word, his wisdom, and his direction if we want to live in our rebellion against God. And the chapter concludes on a very somber note. Samuel's grief and God's regret, again, not an, uh, an admission of God's vacillating purposes, but, uh, but his visceral pain over, over Saul's sin. So here's the thing, folks, if you're this morning, you're listening online, you have never fully committed your life to Christ, put your faith, your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, <clears throat> I would say to you that disobedience is your default position. You don't have a choice. You're going to disobey God. But there is a solution, and the solution is in the Savior, because he, by God's grace, just as he took Saul from being a nobody and made him king, the Lord of the universe wants to take us from being sinful nobodies destined for destruction, which we deserve, and make us into his children who are capable of obeying him. And only in him are we capable of obeying him. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, okay? We've been crucified with Christ we've been raised again together with Him, that we can walk. We're no longer slaves of sin if we're children of God. And the only way to become a child of God is to accept Christ's sacrifice as the payment we deserve on the cross. And when we trust in Christ's death and His resurrection as the payment we deserve and the promise that we'll rise again, then we are forgiven. And then as forgiven people, we're able to be obedient from our heart and not try to jump through the hoops to think we're going to get to God. No, We are His children, and so we obey out of devotion and not duty. And so I invite you, implore you, to to put your faith and your trust in Christ. And if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I have a few bullet points for you and for me. First of all, let's ask the Lord, request of the Lord, where am I inconsistent? Where am I living in partial, delayed, or conditional obedience? Partial, delayed, or conditional. Conditional obedience. Reflect on this promise. You can write it down if you want First Samuel chapter two, verse 30, I will honor those who honor me and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Repent. Repent of our sin. You See, God deserves, He desires and He demands. Our obedience. Resolve and ask God to give us grace to overcome our proclivity to disobedience and to live in light of His Word. And then uh, maybe we need to ask some other people to come alongside us and say, hey, can you help me? Because I know that I have the tendency to fall in this ditch of disobedience, so help me and hold me accountable and, and highlight it for me. See, God's love for us in Christ makes heartfelt obedience possible. And as you take bread and you take juice, you remind yourself, we remind ourselves of what He's done on the cross so that all who put their faith or their trust in Him have the power over sin and disobedience and have the power to obey. And so we repent of our sin before we take these elements. We rejoice in God's deliverance. And we recommit ourselves to live in light of his love for us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you and, and praise you for the lessons from Saul's disobedience and ask now that you give us grace and strength to serve you. And I pray that as we prepare our hearts to take these elements, that you would help us to confess our sins and get our hearts right with you and take these elements out of celebration for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When
1: I serve